0: Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Forrest. And this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured
1: or no, trash piece of cinema. Or a scammy piece of cinema. Scammy. Yeah, we got some scams going on in this. Some I love a good scam. Grifts. Grifts. Rackets. Oh yeah, you've been calling everything a racket lately. <laughs>
0: everything I said like it's a racket. Everything's a racket. So yeah, uh, we've got a lot of rackets that we're talking about today.
1: That's right. And uh, we also have a very, very enjoyable interview with three of my previous coworkers right. who now have a NFT project of their own that they've launched uh, just about a year ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or least started the work on a year ago, launched much more recently. That's right. Um, but yeah, it is. it was great to talk to them. It gives a lot of perspective. They were very generous with their time. They were delightful and
0: we are so excited for you to hear it.
1: Yes, but... As always, and first, the news of the week.
0: News of the week. Spring is almost upon us, and according to NASA, the final full moon of winter, also known as the worm moon, made its appearance Friday night. It is expected to be closely followed by the bass moon.
1: What's up? It's the worm mood, buddy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Polly Shore was the worm. Yeah. That, oh. is, that was my Polly Shore. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. Check the message. Polly Shore. I was getting like Tommy Chong a little bit in there. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> a bass moon
0: is also what would happen when sync would party too hard and get a little too tipsy.
1: Oh, he would, bat, Lance Bass would moon you? Yeah. Oh, that. See, you asked me to choose between bass <laughs> or trout. Now I wish I had chosen trout. <laughs> Wait. A Chicago gas giveaway sponsored by businessman Willie Wilson caused gridlock around the city Tuesday morning. Wilson gave away $200,000 in fuel at 10 different gas stations throughout the city starting at 7 a.m., where each vehicle received $50 in gas until the $200,000 was exhausted. When asked why he settled on this method of distribution, Mr. Wilson replied, I've always said the best deeds of a great man are really to ruin a lot of people's day while ensuring that you get all the credit. Like, just hand out gas cards, man. Gift cards would solve the problem. You
0: could just like put them in little chocolate bars <laughs> and send them out to kids. Yeah, <laughs> Call yourself I... Willy Honka. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the House passed legislation Thursday that would suspend normal trade relations with Russia in a move designed to further isolate Moscow's economy in response to President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. The bill passed. 424 to 8, with all opposition coming from Republicans, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Re- Representative Lauren Boebert, and Dan Bishop, among others. In related news, calendar invites from the Federal Elections Commission appeared in the inbox for all eight representatives with a subject line that just contained emojis of a flying wad of money and a Russian nesting doll.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it just said, uh, how do you say thank you in uh, Russian?
0: I don't think they ever do.
1: A <laughs> Sick burn. Take that, Russian people. I
0: don't know. I'm very sorry, Russian people. You're led by a madman. I feel bad for you.
1: About 400 used bulletproof vests that were supposed to be donated to Ukraine were stolen sometime overnight from a nonprofit organization in Manhattan. While upset about the turn of events, the Ukrainians have asked that the next round of donated vests be, you know, unused. They would prefer the ones that will still stop the bullets, please. <laughs>
0: On Wednesday, Spanish authorities detained a mega-yacht called Crescent that belongs to Igor Sechin, a sanctioned chief executive of Russian oil giant Rosneft, who sails the 135-meter-long yacht under a Cayman Island flag. It was the third yacht tied to Russian oligarchs detained by Spanish authorities in three days. So I guess the Spanish authorities must be prepping for a big game night, since they're playing my favorite game, yacht seas.
1: Hey, you know what they say when they jump onto the yachts? Hmm. No one suspects the Spanish acquisition. <laughs> what is that a reference to? Monty Python. Admitted, no uh, one expects no. the Spanish inquisition, but <laughs> changed it around. They acquired it. So that's okay. Devin's gotcha. laughing somewhere. I gotcha. <laughs> the U.S. Senate on Tuesday passed legislation that would make daylight saving time permanent starting in 2023 ending the twice-annual changing of clocks in a move promoted by supporters advocating brighter afternoons and more economic activity. Now, this has little impact on those of us who, after two years of a pandemic, have become nocturnal shut-ins, but at least politicians can stop arguing over daylight saving time and move on to more important topics like, what new ways can we invent to hurt LGBT children, or is democracy maybe bad?
0: (laughs) I am very much enjoying this Incredibly polarized environment that has absolutely nothing to do with with um, the side, like Republican or Democrat. Right, right. People it's not bad.
1: about ideology. It's oh, just yeah. like people are like, oh, I like sunshine in the morning, and people are like, I like
0: sunshine at night. We can't agree. And then there's like the rare people. They're like, I just like changing my clocks twice a year to make sure they work. <laughs> Coronavirus cases are once again on the rise due to a new COVID variant, which is believed to be 30% more transmissible and accounts for a quarter of all new cases. The new COVID variant dominating cases worldwide is being called Omicron subvariant BA2, which coincidentally is also the name of Grimes and Elon Musk's latest baby.
1: Oh, congratulations to the happy couple.
0: And Omicron subvariant <laughs> BA2.
1: Yeah, it's great for, uh, great for SEO. <laughs> A Central Florida man known as the Monkey Whisperer pleaded guilty after federal officials say he illegally sold a capuchin monkey to, quote, a celebrity client in California. The animal activist organization PETA later identified that entertainer as Chris Brown. Given the abusive nature of Chris Brown's relationship with his ex girlfriend Rihanna, authorities were highly concerned about Mr. Brown spanking his monkey. (laughs) And that's the news of the week. News of the week. For our big story this week, world's oldest man, Joseph R. Biden, has signed an executive (laughs) order on government oversight into cryptocurrency that urges the Federal Reserve to explore whether the central bank should jump in and create its own digital currency. Now, the Biden administration views the explosive popularity of cryptocurrency as an opportunity to study and examine the risks and benefits of digital assets. Under this executive order, Biden has also directed the Treasury Department and other federal agencies to study the impact of cryptocurrency on financial stability and perhaps more importantly on national security. So this would establish the first comprehensive federal digital asset strategy for the United States and would be really interesting for a from the federal government into what has previously been a fairly unregulated market with very little um, oversight or interest from regulators in the federal government. So. It's it's interesting as a starting point for our conversation, because we're actually going to dive into more of the NFT space than the, you know, cryptocurrency space. Mm-hmm. But seeing these regulations of these types of assets come into play for the first time ever, in the U.S. anyway, is is really kind of interesting.
0: I think that it's it makes me think of, it's just like the Wild West, right? That's the NFT space until now has, like you said, been very unregulated. And yeah. I mean, you could just kind of go and do whatever you want much like not to get into the film too much, but kind of very much like the time of the like 1940s where like you could just put cocaine in Mm -hmm. (laughs) Coca-Cola or, you know.
1: Well, I said, I said, you know, so this executive order has actually been expected already by the finance industry, crypto traders, speculators, and lawmakers have kind of assumed that something was going to come out of the executive branch. Yeah. Uh, And they've compared the cryptocurrency market to the Wild West. And I said in my nose, I'm like, or perhaps an old-timey carnival, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. I mean, it, there's there are a lot of parallels. I was actually really pleasantly surprised as I was going through and doing my research after having watched the film and the pairing. Yeah, it's not nearly as tenuous as our pairing from last week. I think. That's
1: right. I think it's it fits much more clearly
0: mm-hmm. in a, in a lot of different ways, but. Um, But before we really get into any of that, I am not super well versed in NFTs, Bitcoin, blockchain, all that. So how about for me and then for all of our listeners who are also like me, we get a little bit of a primer on that.
1: Absolutely. So I'm happy to do that. And I want to just give you a quick overview of who this covers a lot of times. So surveys currently show that about 16% of adult Americans or 40 million people in the country have invested in some form of cryptocurrency. Now, compare that with 56% of Americans who own stock in the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not quite, you know, to that level, but it's actually growing quite quickly, especially among certain groups. Right. So about 43% of men aged 18 to 29 yeah. have put some money into cryptocurrency. That is
0: unsurprising based right. off of Twitter.
1: <laughs> that's Yes, that's right. So Twitter, 100% of Twitter has invested in a cryptocurrency. 100% of
0: 18 to 28-year-old men on Twitter have, yes. That's right.
1: So the question is, you know, we get a lot of terms that you hear when talking about crypto, and, and I want to just break down what they sort of mean mm-hmm. and how they relate to the structure of the technology. So <laughs> the first thing worth understanding is the blockchain. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. So when a transaction is made in digital currency, that transaction is written as what is called a block. Right. Okay. So I have four Bitcoin. I transfer those four Bitcoin to Jesse. Mm-hmm. That is a block that gets put onto the chain with a timestamp and a bunch of other information.
0: The transfer and itself the is transfer The transfer
1: itself is listed. Yeah. Okay. And then the ownership of that specific itemized Bitcoin or, or fractionalized Bitcoin um, belongs to you. Right. So it's
0: the, and I've heard this, this term before but it's like it's the ledger yes so the best
1: the best way to think about it is think about any kind of accounting that one would do for Mm -hmm. a store right Mm -hmm. you're selling bottles of lemonade okay so somebody comes to buy you know, five bottles of lemonade from you, you write that down in your book. I took $5, gave out five bottles of lemonade. To that's Beyonce.
0: Two, yes, that's
1: right. Uh, Beyonce also highly invested in crypto. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Uh, but you write that down in your ledger. Where you debit the, the product, you credit the money, mm-hmm. and that is, exists in typical accounting, right? Mm-hmm. So now rather than just having one copy of that ledger that exists on your desk or in your particular database, that ledger is now what's called distributed which just means that everyone who participates in having Bitcoin through owning a wallet is now responsible for a copy, a full and complete copy of that ledger. Okay. So that is typically managed through the wallets themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's just a special kind of technology that says, this belongs to me, I can log into it with my credentials and gives me access to buy trade or sell that cryptocurrency in my wallet
0: okay and those digital wallets yeah are there companies that make those wallets
1: yeah so some companies like coinbase will have a wallet that is associated with your coinbase account okay you can also have wallets that are you know open source or, or sort of not um, tied to a certain company mm-hmm. you can also have hardware wallets so you can just have a hard drive that basically serves as a wallet that you can put your cryptocurrency onto. That's less easy to move, but mm-hmm. it serves as like, you know, long-term storage.
0: And where do the wallets live? Like so you said on a hard drive. Can it live on my phone? Yes. Or a computer? Yes. Like kind of uh, yeah. any of those devices. Absolutely, yeah. As like a, as an app?
1: As an app or or you can access it through the web sometimes depending on the wallet. Yeah. Okay. And so we'll get into this a little bit with NFTs, but there's one that is I think the primary use um, primarily used for NFTs is called MetaMask. Oh, okay. But so think about this distributed ledger. Okay, so that just gives you an idea of who owns what at any given point, what transactions were made with which other users.
0: And everybody can see
1: yes. or access. Potentially, yeah. Now, it's obviously complicated, but the idea is that that is open to everyone. Yeah. Okay. So now why? what is cryptocurrency, right? So mm-hmm. each of these blockchains is uh, created through some amount of work. And especially in the early days, there was something called Proof of work, which means that you are actually doing mining for bitcoins for the currency, right? Mm -hmm. And so those miners are intensive computations done typically on what are called GPUs, which are which are very fast computational machines that were originally for the graphics and video games, right? But they've sort of been repurposed to do the complex solving of very difficult math equations, and the solutions for those equations um, are basically doing the work of keeping the blockchain organized. And so if you are mining for Bitcoin or mining for Ethereum or whatever, or Ether, what you're doing is a bunch of calculations on your computer. And for that, you are rewarded with currency native to that chain.
0: So I remember when we lived in New York, my friend Jordan Mm -hmm. had an extra computer. He was into gaming. He had an extra computer in his apartment. Yeah. And it was always running. And this was at the very beginning yep. of blockchain and Bitcoin. And he was mining a Bitcoin, yeah. I believe. And I think it was my understanding that the mining itself is like the hard work. That's right. And that hard work also creates that sort of artificial um, scarcity. That's right. That's right.
1: Because right, it's, it's very difficult. And the more of these of the Bitcoins you find through the process of solving these equations, the fewer of them there are left. There is a finite number. And there are a finite number of finite solution to the, the math problem, basically. Mm-hmm. So every proof of work type of cryptocurrency is going to have a finite number. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be unlimited like the US dollar could be.
0: Right. Okay. It, it kind of reminds me of diamonds in the way that... You know, there's a finite number of them, but also you have a company like De Beers or whatever who like takes them and locks them away to create that right. scarcity.
1: And certainly there are and people, value. yeah, certainly there are people who have locked away quite a bit of you know any cryptocurrency. I think the the Winklevoss twins were uh, notoriously high on Bitcoin early, and so they have. I'm not sure exactly what their holdings are, but um it's a lot. So yeah, um that's certainly one of the criticisms of these types of currencies is that they tend to be highly related to who has access to fiat currency. So if you're very wealthy, if you're multi, multi-billionaires in fiat currency like the US dollar, you can also be the arbiter of a lot of power in the crypto world by mm-hmm. maintaining a lot of this, this currency yourself.
0: Yeah. Although I guess I'm thinking of like the the mining of it and the fact that it's locked away in this equation as also creating that scarcity, I guess. Like, in in itself, or not scarcity, but like also limit, creating yeah. that those limitations, That's right? right? Yeah, it's like the 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 limitations on access are are from people having it, but also just from not being able to like just go get all of them. Right. All you at don't one have time. a you
1: don't have a Federal Reserve of the you know Bitcoin world or of the cryptocurrency world that says oh we should just create more. Right. Right. We should just double it or what have you. There's mm-hmm. no quantitative easing in crypto. It doesn't seem. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a story for another day. I guess we could talk about quantitative easing <laughs> later, but, but yeah, so that's the idea, right? Is you have this distributed ledger for work on that ledger, you're value, you are rewarded with, um, access to the cryptocurrency that can be then exchanged for goods and services. It can be cashed out for us dollars or any other fiat currency for the most part or most others. And so one of the, the two main criticisms here are, First, right now in uh, the Senate, even yesterday, there's so much going on with this stuff right now that mm-hmm. it's actually kind of hard to keep up with. But yesterday, uh, Elizabeth Warren and others were asking executives at crypto companies, could this be used to get around sanctions in Russia, right? Because you could conceivably convert from USD to crypto, crypto to Ruples, right, or right. what have you. Now, it's that, not exactly um, how that works in practice. Like Access to this kind of money for transfer over cryptocurrency would not make up for... The money that they lost due to sanctions, right? It's not quite able to be replicated in that way. Although it's still an interesting question to say, could they avoid some of the sanctions or some of the harsher elements of the sanctions through cryptocurrency to be determined? Not, mm-hmm. not quite sure yet. The other thing is that that proof of work um, is very computationally expensive, right? Which is leads to higher power consumption, right? And so, I believe right now, uh, the last I heard was the entire the the use of the Bitcoin blockchain over the course of a year has the same power draw as the entire country of Libya, and it's increasing every year.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's the the big thing that. It- I laughed at when I first heard because it sounds kind of ridiculous yeah. that y- y- there's an environmental toll that crypto has. Right, but but when you think about it, you know, again, in my mind, it's just Jordan's computer in his apartment, right? right. But he's a single person mining a single thing. You have these entire farms mm-hmm. that are mining Bitcoin, and I think I was telling you about an article I read just yesterday. Again, there's so many things coming uh, out out of Texas where Governor Abbott is trying to uh, be the Bitcoin mining mecca of America, essentially. Yeah. And you have all of these companies that are coming to them and, and trying to set up these farms because power is incredibly inexpensive in Texas. Yeah. And so these farms, I think one farm would ha- um, use the power of uh, like 60,000 homes in order to farm. They want to set up like two farms. So it's like 120,000 um 120,000 homes could be powered power, yeah. uh, by the energy that's going into mining these bitcoins which is which is bonkers yeah. and that's just <laughs> from a single person trying to or a single yeah, entity trying yeah. to 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 get these bitcoins in just one state you
1: right. know it is a bit strange now there are some solutions to this particular problem mm-hmm. as cryptocurrencies evolve so ethereum which is a blockchain that has the cryptocurrency ether um, I'm gonna just insert Nas doing ether right here, just the the audio track of Nas doing ether <laughs> under this. But no, what I, what I think is, that is starting to move from Ethereum to Ethereum 2. And the second version moves to something called proof of stake. And so proof of stake means that you take a certain amount of that cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and lock it up. You get rid of some of that bad actor problem by locking away a percentage of everybody's cryptocurrency that they can't use, and it's called staking. So if you have uh, your cryptocurrency staked on the blockchain, that could be used as collateral to ensure that you behave yourself and that you don't pretend to be somebody you're not or use your cryptocurrency for bad or malintent purposes. So it's a it's it's a little bit of a different thing, but the point about that is is mm-hmm. you're no longer actually running these, you know, computations all the time to try and mine for, you know, coin. You are just locking up that coin as the protective aspect and so you're not actually running the GPUs, which means you're not actually using that much power at all um so okay. it's it's a little bit complicated we don't really need to get into it too much right, but right. but the crypto community in many ways is hearing a lot of the criticisms and is trying to address them though it may be slow and maybe difficult mm-hmm. it's still you know in the in the quote unquote ether.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean that joke only became funny to me like 30 seconds second, ago yeah. <laughs> because you
1: told me what ether was. Yeah. And so now sort of winding around towards NFTs, right? We talked about the ledger and why there are currencies on the ledger, but NFTs do something similar with different types of blockchains. So some NFTs exist on uh, Ethereum, some will exist on different blockchains, but what it means is instead of owning a certain set of currencies, You own sort of the rights, not in a legal sense, which we can talk about, um, but in an on-chain sense, you own the rights to what you've purchased in terms of artwork, um, which can be anything from JPEGs, videos, music. A lot of different things Mm -hmm. can be stored, or at least their ownership potential can be stored on the blockchain. So in the same way you would write you know, Jesse gave me $5 for five bottles of lemonade. Mm -hmm. You could say, you know, Jesse gave Forrest $100 for a picture of Indiana. Great. Mm -hmm. So it's just a way to keep track of who owns what. And now the NFT world has sort of taken off and you see it are really starting to grow in speculative assets. So what people are doing is dropping NFTs that are called one of one, which means there's only one version of them. There's not thousand different types of content you could buy it's just like one image and you sell that and those can go for millions of dollars Mm -hmm. you know depending on the person and so what we see is a lot of those were very popular those speculative assets grew in value really quickly Um, but we also see people like we'll talk to you know the gods team in a few minutes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are selling their nfts as these Artistic projects that, sure, sure will get the artist paid, which is kind of the key point, right. but are not necessarily intended to blow up to millions of dollars a piece because there are, I think, a thousand of them total. Mm-hmm. So there is artificial scarcity placed in there, but it's not to the level that they're going to try and drive a single... A piece of artwork and digital artwork in the same way you would a single piece of physical, like a painting artwork.
0: Right. But I mean, at the same time, you could have somebody like Ansel Adams or whatever who would take a photograph and then only produce so many prints.
1: That's right. And like
0: the value is like there's like a set, you know, a set of 100 or something like that. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is kind of one of the the other criticisms of, of NFTs is that, well, If it's just a a digital artwork, I could take that and I could right click it and save it to my computer and then I have that artwork, right? Mm -hmm. But there is no difference really between me buying the or asking for Christmas to get the Moonlight screenplay and the nicely bound right. A24 book with the images and the, the description of the the stuff, or me going to the guy who sells bootleg uh, screenplays in front of NYU and buying the Moonlight screenplay and like a thing that he put together, or me going on the internet and downloading it for free, right? right. There's there there has always been in art piracy mm-hmm. there's always been different versions of the same art to come out so you can buy a poster of the mona lisa or you could go and steal the one from the louvre like you know right plenty of different kinds of heists and scams and opportunities have always existed in in art as a medium mm-hmm. and i think that we're seeing maybe them happen faster and with a little bit more interest and intrigue because of the technological components mm-hmm. in in nft world but it's not appreciably different from the way art has been treated throughout history right like mm-hmm. We're talking about movies every week, and a lot of people spend a lot of time pirating movies. Like it's, you know, it's not a, it's not the same thing as going out and buying a steelbook like you know, Blu-ray or or 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray or something like that. You know?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's so fascinating that we have this entirely new kind of art and this entirely new kind of medium that has been born in a time after places like the Pirates Bay, right? Yeah. After we've had you know, the entire revolution of of people being able to digitize media and just take it for free um, from Napster yeah. or wherever, right? And we have an entire generation of people who don't own physical things and don't even necessarily see the value in owning them. But then there is also this aspect of saying, but I recognize artists and I want them to get paid. And I recognize there is some legitimacy in like this this ownership, even if it's not a physical thing. Right. right? It's it's in the the idea yeah. of like legitimate art that you're contributing to an artist's career. Yeah.
1: For. And and we'll hear, you know, Chad talk about this specifically and right. and Jamie also goes into it as like how digital artists used to have to be forced to sacrifice some of their like art in order to make money Mm -hmm. it's like now it doesn't seem like that's necessarily the case um although you know you still have to find a market you still have to do a lot of the early investment yourself and all that kind of stuff that hasn't changed but at least there is a potential way Mm -hmm. for those patrons of yours to actually support your work
0: right i mean we both you know again living in new york we both have plenty of friends who went to art school yep and who have had to sort of sell their souls in a way to like advertising and i, I yeah. know so many artists or like art school kids that yeah. are in advertising and are paying paying the bills doing these things um that yeah. they hate um our friend tom who used to work for fox business yeah, right. for instance you know and but at the same time because they it's because they don't have those avenues
1: yeah and so one thing i'll say is you know people don't necessarily like the speculative nature of this. So an NFT goes out and gets sold for, you know, 200 bucks upfront. And then all of a sudden you see that jump to like several thousand and then, you know, several tens of thousands and people are like, oh, well that's just the speculative market driving up prices on things that, you know, are just silly little images or whatever. But the good news about that, Mm -hmm. and this is one of the things that the blockchain provides, is there are these things called smart contracts. Mm -hmm. And so what can happen is, when the artist sells the initial NFT, they can put in there that any reselling of that NFT for a markup or, you know, uh, appreciation of value, mm-hmm. a percentage of that goes back to the original artist.
0: So like a royalties almost? So, yeah,
1: exactly. And so let's say that, you know, I bought a, a, a god from the the crew for, you know, a hundred bucks. Right. And I turn around, and I sell it for a thousand. Well, they get 5% of that thousand, right? Mm-hmm. So not only did they make the, the hundred bucks that I spent initially in, in Ether, but they also get five percent of that thousand so they get another 50 bucks right if it later gets sold again for two thousand they get a hundred bucks and so it's great it's like a way to actually continue to support that artist throughout the lifetime of their artwork no Mm -hmm. matter who owns it it's not just a one-time thing which is really interesting i think that's actually a really smart way to approach that problem of how how can you become an artist for life not just for a project
0: Right. Or how can you have like that sustainable income? You know, this was a, a thing that you had always said that you wanted to go into film originally when you went to film school yep. and then you realized you can't make money. Right. In, film, in the film industry, either you are a starving artist or you are-
1: Work for a studio. Yeah. yeah. You
0: work for a studio or like, you know, you are George Lucas. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Either you're like the biggest, 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 or you're like a starving artist. Right. That's right. Um, And, and so it seems like this is a way to sort of find a, a medium place where you can- Just have a living and you can be sustained off of art, even if it's not you being the
1: George Lucas of NFTs.
2: Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, I wonder if Georgie Porgy is getting into NFTs. That would be fun. Uh, (laughs) You mean that Jar Jar NFT? No, I'm just kidding. Please don't.
0: (laughs) You know it would be worth so much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So so NFTs have actually become pretty commonplace in a lot of spaces. Brands have been using them. you know, in ways that you would expect. Um, in B- the NBA has something called Top Shots, which are basically the digital equivalent of trading cards. Mm-hmm. So you might actually have an NFT that represents a certain play or a certain player, and you can trade those back and forth. Some of them actually start pretty um, inexpensively at this point, I think much to the chagrin of people who own them early on. Right. Um, but, you know, that's a it's an interesting, um, you know, thing to look at. I know that Meta, the former formerly Facebook, now Meta, is actually looking at the process of being able to mint NFTs within Instagram, so you could potentially make NFTs out of your, you know, your Instagram posts. Um, so this is starting to grow very rapidly, and mm-hmm. people are sort of sometimes criticizing, like, "Oh, we're not going to find a use case for this. What is the? Why would this be the thing? Blah blah blah." But we're just in the infancy, just starting to see people really pick up how they use these things in new and novel ways. Right. So it's still worth exploring. I think I wouldn't like throw this into the trash bin of bad tech yet
0: (laughs) right but i mean there has been so there have been so many innovations that have come out of art and that have come out of exploration where it wasn't initially the the intent right and then later on down the road you like you can start to formulate the ways that it can be more utilitarian But at the infancy of whatever that may be it was just for the the thought experiment just of do it. weird stuff just with to it, yeah. yeah just to do something kind of weird like yeah. I don't think that when the internet was first created that they were thinking it was going to be this like all-encompassing like, informational like yeah. way of life. I mean, the
1: internet started in DARPA in the 1960s. And it was we didn't just get Al any Gore real... in a basement. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we didn't get any real use case out of the internet for most of the public until the 90s, you know? So it's, right. it's really, uh, it, it took 30 years for the technology to prove itself as being useful to the general population. And then another, you know, 20 years before everybody's mom was on Facebook saying silly things. So they're always right. going to be skeptics. Now, Um, I think that I am not necessarily an an optimist or a pessimist. I am just kind of interested in seeing where it goes. Mm -hmm. But since we watched a movie about some cool scams, (laughs) and I love a good scam. Let's hear it. I wanted to show you, I wanted to go over three examples of the bad side of this market, right? Okay. So number one, uh, I want to get everybody's attention really early. So I'll start with Porn actress Lana Rhodes launched an (laughs) NFT collection called Cryptosis before reportedly abandoning the project and draining most of the funds. Now, this is called a rug pull. That would be the name Mm -hmm. of the scam where you get a lot of people invested into the crypto, uh, the NFT space for this project that you're going to drop. And when you drop it, you either do nothing and run away with the money, mm-hmm. or you just give them something completely like trash.
0: Kurtosis uh, sounds like when you get really bad breath from smoking some dank weed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Rhodes apparently made off with about $1.8 million, and she denies that the project is a scam, but she's not giving any of that money back. Mm. She says it's going to her, quote, development team, and according to her <laughs> uh, on Twitter, she has just been making fun of people who gave money to the project and calling them pores and she's seems fairly deplorable she seems like a bad person so mm. um bad actors exist in all of these worlds uh, right. whether that is crypto or otherwise but certainly makes for some fun news what happens uh, in a place like this
0: right the next
1: one is a nft project called balloonsville and they made <laughs> off with at least 590,000 and it wasn't the first time they did it either. So the scam was actually pulled off by people behind another scam called Doodle Dragons, which took home over $30,000 the month before. So these scammers sort of take credit for their deception. Mm -hmm. They actually went out on Twitter saying like, Y'all really believe anything nowadays, and they claim to have used paid actors to hype this up and whatnot. I don't know how you can scam people like this and then not get in trouble or arrested for it, but maybe they remain anonymous. That's what Biden's
0: getting on the case for, But that's
1: exactly it, right? So if the questions are, you know, talking about risk and security, how do you securitize these kinds of assets, Mm -hmm. um, you know, through the SEC or otherwise? Mm -hmm. And finally, probably the most noted one recently is a group of hackers that carried out a phishing attack to steal potentially hundreds of NFTs, from users of the OpenSea platform. Mm -hmm. OpenSea think of it as like Etsy, but for NFTs. Um, So it's one of the largest NFT marketplaces on the internet. Mm -hmm. And the total value of the NFTs they stole was worth about $1.7 million. It so, is
0: also funny though because open seas is definitely the name of like the place where you get robbed by pirates. Oh yes,
1: absolutely right. Yeah, you're out in the open seas and here come the pirates and they take your stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the hacker tricked about 17 victims for signing into malicious payload which authorized the transfer of their NFTs to the attacker for free. It's interesting to sort of see these things play out whether they're scams that sort of your run of the mill mentalist might pursue mm-hmm. uh like you know selling some stuff and then pulling the money out from other people, pulling the rug out from other people. Right. Or whether it's something more advanced that a hacker would pursue by actually going through and crafting a very specific malicious attack on, you know, somebody's bank, basically.
0: Right. Well, I mean, again, I think that it's like, it's kind of interesting because it does evoke, in my mind, images of like snake oil salesmen who would travel around and they would sell people whatever these like faulty tonics were or whatever. And again, it was a highly unregulated place that, you know, maybe you were getting something that was helpful or maybe there was like a placebo effect, but more than likely you were getting something that was probably poisoning you and like slowly turning you blind <laughs> or Right. addicting you to some kind of a substance. That's right. And, you know, it it took a lot of regulation and people being like, I, I want to be able to trust, yeah. you know, what it is that I'm purchasing. Yeah.
1: They sneak a little uh, drop of, of opium into your bottle and all of a sudden you're chewing <laughs> on a live chicken. <laughs>
0: A little preview of our film. Folks. Yes.
1: <laughs> and so before we get to the film, uh, we do want to get to the interview with uh, Jamie Wilkinson, Chad Pugh, and Casey Pugh as they talk us through a little bit of their NFT project called Gods. That's G A W D S, which is why I say it like that. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, they're going to talk us through a little bit of something uh, that was really informative, really helpful for us to understand, not just from the consumer side of this or the news side, but as an actual creator.
0: That's right. Very excited.
1: Yeah. So here we go. Let's do it. All right, everybody. It is nearly impossible to be both brief and complete with the introductions to our guests today. So I'll be neither. Uh, I have personally worked with all three gentlemen at VHX, which was an online video distribution platform uh, co-founded by Jamie Wilkinson and Casey Pugh, and where Chad Pugh was the design director. Jamie was also the co-founder of the website Know Your Meme, former chief product officer at Kickstarter, and is currently on the board of the Decentralized Wireless Alliance, helping build the Helium peer-to-peer wireless network. Casey was employee number three, I believe, at Vimeo back in the long, long ago, and has recently released a party game for iOS and Android called Wavelength. And Chad has over 15 years of experience in interactive products, including working on in-car experiences for concept vehicles and virtual robotics interfaces with the Toyota Research Institute. And is genuinely one of the best artists that I've had the privilege of ever working with and meeting. So uh, it's a a wonderful opportunity that we get to welcome these guys to the show. And oh yeah, they're also all Emmy winners for their project, Star Wars Uncut. So guys, welcome to the Crosscut.
0: Welcome.
1: Glad to be here. Yes. Great intros. Yeah, I had to put that together, copy and pasting from uh, from LinkedIn. So yeah, you're
3: that welcome. That was good. That was very <laughs> yeah. uh, generous. Very
1: it generous. was. It also
4: highlights that I should update my
1: LinkedIn.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, very true. Now, you know, the, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you guys on is because you've all been working on um, a, a NFT project called Gods, uh, G A W D S. For those who are interested in googling, but I like that you pronounce the W. I yes. got to, yeah. yeah. Uh, I listen to a lot of Anderson Pack and he always does yes loud. And so <laughs> try to try to do that. But you know, sort of uh in, in thinking about that introduction and, and how I framed it, you know, you guys have been on what I would consider like the forward edge of the internet culture for you know going on decades. Um, not to age anybody, but you know, I think Star Wars Uncut was one of the first like popularly recognized and awarded user-generated content experiments. Um, know your meme still remains like a working dictionary of internet subculture, um, and at VHX it was all about democratizing video distribution at a time when that wasn't really possible. Um, so, on that sort of idea of being on that bleeding edge, what is it about like Web three and NFTs, maybe specifically, that seemed to scratch the same itch, or was it something something new?
4: Well, for me, as a you know a designer and artist first and programmer very little. Specifically with the NFTs uh, and this culture, it felt like a way to publish and distribute your work in a way that felt rewarding for the first time in a long time. Web three in general feels like pretty raw and interesting, and lots of kooky experiments out there. So, honestly, like the the genesis of of building on top of Ethereum has 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 felt more like the initial web experience i i had in college than um than it has in years and it it just provided me a ton of energy and excitement um and the the with the side of feeling like everyone's getting rewarded the people that are paying you end up getting rewarded if if it does well if your project does well and and you are rewarded it it just it's just it really felt like a positive growth from what I've been used to.
3: Yeah, I think that what is happening with web three and crypto and sort of the creative side of crypto specifically has a lot of ghosts of a lot of the media art work that, that I was also involved in, you know, a decade ago, where people are making projects that really kind of utilize the technology in new and unique ways and sort of leverage these new constraints and sort of this new format for publishing things. And they're putting them out into the world with the huge and notable difference that the folks who were doing it a decade ago, who are doing it again today, people who've worked in digital art for decades, have rarely, if ever, actually been able to sell the work and make any money off of it. The common business model among the media artists that I would work with was you make a really cool project and then an alcohol brand approaches you and says, (laughs) can you make exactly the same thing, but with our brand, our logo here? That was kind of the Faustian bargain that people would make and one of the things that I think is really this unique opportunity with crypto is the fact that it is, in fact, money and everything is being bought and sold. There's a lot of complexities to that. And there's a lot of issues that can arise from that, as with all things related to money. But boy, does
1: it feel really good to see artists getting paid money for their work. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So full disclosure, you know, uh, on the launch of Gods, I, I bought two of them. And so it wasn't because I was necessarily trying to like have a speculative asset that would grow, you know, my my portfolio or anything like that. It was like I literally enjoyed Chad's artwork. I thought this was a cool project and wanted to support the team. So it's like there, there's a very tra- simple transactional nature to this that I don't think uh, people see when they only look at like the scammy side of it.
3: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of motivations for why people buy NFTs. Some people are really there for the art and the aesthetic, and that you see that particularly sort of when people publish like one of one right right. project you know one of one pieces where it is kind of closer to sort of more traditional art but the same thing applies when people do kind of these series and what's so cool about the digital format and sort of the way that it's being published is that you know you can kind of experiment with what your artwork actually means and i I love seeing these artists who have who are making like large collections or medium-sized collections of their work rather than sort of the traditional way that they would do things which is like i do a show every other year i have 11 pieces
0: in my mind, it almost sounds like rather than thinking about this as an investment, which you know it, it is, but it's instead maybe like patronage of the arts, um, which uh, you know if you think about like artists, it, you know I don't know are like Renaissance artists or whatever, right? They always had patrons that would help fund their careers. It's not like they were just you know creating art in a vacuum, and that was the way that you were able to have these great movements um, in art. And it, so it seems like maybe. I don't know. It just like the, the lens of saying it's patronage as opposed to just like purely like hard numbers investing.
1: You mean Da Vinci wasn't out there just like hawking paintings on the street?
0: I mean a little bit. I think he was though. Oh,
1: okay. Well, yeah. Um, Yeah. The self promote. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: But I think that maybe it's um, it, 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 it puts it more in those like traditional art context, at least in my mind to think about it as like you're, you're a, a patron of the arts as opposed to like you're investing in this like crypto. That's I always right.
1: consider myself a patron of the arts. Thank you for saying <laughs> that. Yeah, <laughs> it's
3: it's, yes. it's interesting, though, because I think while I believe that that is kind of the correct approach to be taking with a lot of this in sort of ways from from perhaps like a moral and and sort of like feeling good about it in the morning perspective, I actually think the majority of the people involved in the market are approaching it as investors and as speculators. And so. One of the challenges with crypto is that the timeframes are hyper compressed. And so like short term trading already stresses me out. But crypto moves at like 10x speed. So short term trading means hours, not days. So there's a strange culture that's emerged where some people are approaching it as art and patronage. And I'm here for the aesthetics. Some people trade NFTs without even looking at them because they are just numbers in a spreadsheet. But I think most people kind of fall in the middle where they buy pieces that they like, but they also hope that it'll appreciate.
1: It also makes it so that people who are trying to decide on whether they should support something or not don't necessarily have the time to do the research on whether it's going to be like a scam or a, a thing that's of value or if it's just kind of you know something they're even interested in. Mm-hmm. Do you think the distribution of those types of people
2: who buy NFTs or digital work it's the same in just the traditional art world just now more accessible to
1: everyone
3: i think it's a good question yeah, yeah. I, I honestly i haven't had enough exposure to real art collectors to be able to say
1: yeah my my limited understanding would be like they're they're probably same in terms of wealth status within their cohort i would imagine traditional art collectors tend to skew older
3: the time horizon like i have bought a lot of art from friends that i have on my walls It. Is beautiful and i love to support the arts and yes i would like these pieces to go up in value but my time horizon with it is like 30 years right and i think that that creates a very different dynamic than some of the cases you see where i've even seen people buy
2: like one of one
3: nfts and then list them for sale two days later
2: what are you doing here right i mean the expectations of some of the people in the gods Gods community is uh, way too high. Like people are just like, why isn't this worth more already after like we launched it after a week? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, those, those are the things that are like not great as like creators of the project. like we, we appreciate the people who like the arts and wanted us to do more things and build more interactive experiences with the nfts with the gods but the expectations from the community can just be a little over the top sure
0: speaking of like those interactive aspects i was just curious about sort of what some of those like major components of gods are as a person who is not as familiar as forest um i wonder if you could talk a little bit about just the gods uh project
3: are you asking us to shill our pyramids (laughs) Please, because we're here for it. Yes, yeah, please. please yeah.
4: Absolutely. The, the initial uh, name of the project was Pyramid Scheme. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it started from, it actually goes back to like just before Vimeo days that, that I worked there. Um, I had an illustration style that I was doing. And at the time, I made prints. You know that was the only way for a person wanting to produce something to to make money. So like this is like fifteen, almost twenty years ago. I made these prints. I hand signed them. I shipped them to everybody. I sold like five hundred. They sold out, sold out really quick. It was successful, but extremely uh, work intensive. But in them, there was this little uh, eye of provenance in there. It like was supposed to represent me in the illustration, looking over this you know world I had created. There's a video on on YouTube and Vimeo of, of me creating this. It was a viral uh,
2: video at the time. It, it, it was that vir-
4: Yeah, pretty viral-ish <laughs> at, the, at the time. You know, flash forward to 15 years later, 20 years later, I'm looking at all these NFT projects launching, and I'm being like, why am I not making one of these? And I was like, oh, I, I, I really like this character I made. I'm just going to have a, a bunch of different like textures on on pyramids, different eyes, and I'll just push this out real quick. And then like, you know, a month later, while I'm doing this, I see like Bored Apes launch and I shrug at it. I'm like, oh, I could do better than that (laughs) artistically. And and then like, you know, I'm sharing this with like Jamie and Casey as I'm building it and asking like, what's the best way to start producing this? Then I asked these guys to come get involved. We all thought this would be like a month or two of work.
1: (laughs) It's going on over a year now, right? Almost
4: not, not quite a year yet. Okay. I guess. Yeah. No, no. It's I started, kind of, I started I think it's it. kind of
3: a
1: year. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Hey, happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes. So one thing that always interests me is like the generative part of this stuff. So can you talk a little bit about how the development of that part comes around? Do you design and draw all the assets first and then sort of randomize them? Or is there some special sauce in there? Yeah, we could show you a spreadsheet,
4: but um, you would you would probably really enjoy it. Actually, um, <laughs> you you love spreadsheets. I, uh, I do love
1: spreadsheets. They make uh, shit podcasts, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. let's talk about uh, cells. Um, <laughs> it was
2: kind of a collaboration between me and Chad. Me being the developer of the randomization and generation. Yeah, Chad made a spreadsheet at first with like all the different parts and layers. So like a god is constructed of five. Distinct layers and each layer can have any number of parts to it. And so in the spreadsheet, it just defines that, all that stuff. And then I ended up using the Google spreadsheet to like power the Unity app that I made to generate it. What started off as like, let's just make a bunch of like high resolution PNGs turn into like, let's export 8K videos and holograms and and PNGs and just kind of like spiraled from there. But initially, it just started off as a, a tool for Chad to, I, I got to the point where he could just easily randomize and see how all the different layers of a god uh, look together. Cause he, it's hard to do that in Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator, uh, in a fast and easy way. So once you have the tool, I just made it easy for all of us to like really flip through all the millions of combinations so that we can spot check and make sure it looks good. And I mean, you can't check every scenario, but <laughs> if you like hit randomize it enough, you'll you'll start to see like trends and directions and things. Uh, so we I feel like we spent months on finding like we'd see like one layer doesn't look good with another one. So we would say, okay, let's make sure th- those two never show up together.
0: What do you call an individual P Like you just call it an NFT. For god. A god <laughs> you refer to as a god.
2: That, so, that's what yeah. we call it in the project,
4: but it's yeah, each individual one is an NFT.
0: Okay, so then with the because I'm again, I'm like kind of not in this world at all, but it's 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 so interesting. But so just to each god is you said composed of like five sort of different pieces, and then they randomize in the spreadsheet, and then it, it like one piece is composed of those five parts to, to make this this god. How then is it? I guess enjoyed by mm. the purchaser.
3: Yeah, there's there's also Casey skipped over some other oh cool pieces of the production which help with the enjoyment of the <laughs> piece. Where uh, I, don't, I don't know how how much I should nerd out on it. But honestly, well, go wild. it's I mean, God's is one of the first holographically rendered NFTs rendered as a light field. For compatibility with this looking glass i mean we're nothing if not tech forward media media art fans Yeah, you know, casey's been working on these holograms forever and so with a god when you buy it part of what you're getting is feeling of digital ownership like you do in fact own a thing which is honestly very hard to explain to somebody who hasn't experienced it um i would recommend just buy you know sh- Looking for some art and buying it in the same way that I feel like it would be hard to describe to somebody what it feels like to buy and own art in your home, uh, which, which not everybody values, but just sort of like supporting the artist and having the object with you. One thing that people really like about NFTs is like bringing your art collection with you. Like I was with people last night and they can show me their art collection on their phone. Which is kind of novel, and it's and it's not the same as showing you my Tumblr blog or whatever, where it's like that. In some ways, that is an art collection, yes, but these are pieces that I've actually purchased, and somewhat paradoxically, start to build sort of emotional attachment to them. And
4: the emotional attachment is real.
3: Yeah, it's very real. Yeah, and and the last thing is that they're also, I mean, they're not just static. Images, or in this case, like with the gods, are actually rendered as, like I mentioned, like as holograms, as movies, as images, as gifs. Like they're in, you know, eight or ten different formats, and we could render them as even more. But they're also pieces of code, and in this case, it is kind of comparable to like a like a game, like a video game item is probably the easiest way to think about it. You know, these gods are composed of all these different parts and the parts have different attributes or they might have different values. Like you might have like a sword that's like a plus five sword or whatever. And with the gods, you have these. We created, I mean, Chad created this entire lore lore system. Yeah. Where these power alignments, there's these, the 18 powers and there's the three cults that worship the various powers. And I think that's like one of the coolest things about crypto too, is that it's like, first of all, like fundamentally it's still all money, but they're also pieces of code and they are extendable and they are composable and you can use them in other projects and, and what's they're so
4: open, open to the public they're you open could, to the public
3: Any, exactly like like we talk all the time about sort of uh, doing collaborations with other projects and here is how we would go about
1: forming that kind of a business partnership we would just build it that kind of speaks to a couple of like the criticisms that you hear where it's like people are like oh i can just you know right click and save this jpeg well Sort of what you're indicating in part is well, that's not exactly how that works. If you actually want to go on and use your artwork in these games or other collaborations that you're talking about, you do actually have to have that ownership on the blockchain with your like with your personal wallet in order to engage in the additional things that come along with that ownership space. As opposed to you know it, 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 somebody saying they can copy something is like saying that you can you know rip a DVD. It's like congratulations, that's still not the whole like people still yeah. buy dvds for a reason
3: <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and then
1: people are experimenting heavily
3: with what can you do with this token and i've been to events where you need to prove that you own the thing before you're allowed to come in people i know artists who've set up sort of like collector only mailing lists and sort of one thing that i've definitely observed is just that it's there is more like crazy experiments happening with this stuff than i've seen in a long time
4: on the flip side of the creativity and experimentation like the it it is also an evolving space, and just like in the process of illustrating gods, the space in which you were you know deemed a successful project, like what determined that and what what made that happen changed. You know, every few weeks something comes out wherever like the paradigm has changed with like what is expected of projects or or um, how to promote your work or how to how to try to s- sell your content. But it, it's been interesting to to like be constantly trying to sell gods in this environment I would say different from the art world there there's like a technical and greater expectation of of like what what does this object do for me if I'm going to own this the the evolution is interesting but not without like problems so like it started feeling to me like a giant artist renaissance Right now, it might not feel exactly the same way. Now it feels like kind of like mini project startups.
2: Kind of at a, taking a step back more generally. That's why we're all here, is that we tend to like to play with new toys, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and like that's like all of Web three is just entirely new uh, industries building being built on top of it, and no one really knows. From my perspective. I feel like no one knows like what the end result is going to be. But everyone is here to iterate and experiment and trying a new thing, even if they don't know what it is or if it's just a dumb idea. There are so many different projects. Just just trying to push the boundaries of this technology because as people call call it, you know, blockchain is the world computer that can only process very little data and it's very expensive to do complex things. So there's a lot of like technically interesting challenges to like Engineers, and I think that's what gets people interested. But I'm interested in how we can use it to build more utilities and utilities that everyone in the world can use. Right. Um, so I, th- I think these are all just baby steps towards something.
1: You know, one of the things that we saw a, a big failure of Web two is like all of your personal data and information was uh, ne- necessarily owned by companies like Google, Facebook, etc. And that's a, a real turnoff for a lot of people. And this is an opportunity to maybe have some of the same or similar types of functionality without having to turn yourself over to one major corporation. You kind of just turn yourself over to the, the hive.
3: <laughs> yeah. And the other the other piece of it that gets me very excited about it is the cooperative ownership. The fact that the users of a product can be owners of the company, so to speak, and that the sure. company is not just one company, but a conglomerate of companies all working together on something that is open source and peer-to-peer, and this is like a level of access to being able to essentially invest in startups that regular people have really not been able to do since the Great Depression. You've also seen this change in uh, companies waiting longer and longer to go public. So the period at which normal people, like your average American, I'm not even talking about people in the third world who don't have the ability to do this at all, but like the normal American who can kind of make some investments with a retirement account, are kind of getting just stuck with these bags when private equity firms and venture firms and startups go public very, very, very late in sort of the cycle of wealth creation. Yeah.
1: And in fact, they, they use SPACs to get around that at
3: all. (laughs) They do this very much by design too. It is a way of, of cashing out your bag. It is a very explicit strategy now that's been well-developed and, uh, I think the, the regular people pay the price. And it is, I think it is so exciting to see systems emerging where regular people can participate and be part of it. And that's a lot of the work that I've done with uh, Helium and with the DY is the idea of creating a telecommunications company that is owned uh, in large part by its users. And people get so excited about that once they said, like, on the one, on the one hand, you can think of this as dangerous, but it is so exciting to me to think about buying products from companies in which I own the stock. And not just like Apple, but my local bodega, right? I would love to invest in my local bodega. I already go there all the time and I really like them. And I think more access to capital on both sides of this equation is really
1: powerful stuff. Yeah, and besides, who cares about danger? We live in a pandemic at the beginning of World (laughs) War III. Like, fuck it. (laughs) I saw an
0: article, I think, yesterday where um, A-Rod was talking about how – he was giving some kind of presentation where he was talking about how people uh, might be able to sort of do that cooperative ownership of sports teams.
3: Yeah, like – and they do this in Europe already. Like, a lot of the soccer teams – not a lot, but I know some soccer teams in Europe are actually owned by locals. And how great is that? Instead of oligarchs being the only ones who benefit from ownership of these things that people emotionally own, why not also
1: financially own it?
0: Right. Isn't and the I, Green Bay Packers also? Green yeah. Bay
1: Packers is the only NFL team allowed to be owned by the fans. What do you wow. mean by allowed? After that happened, they put in a rule that says there's no there's <laughs> there a limit you go. on participation in ownership. <laughs> Here we they go. Had to, they had to legalize their cartel.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and and it, it is so. Upsetting. The more as an adult I've uh, learned about how rigged the system is, like this, I, I know that it is it is somewhat naive and optimistic to say all you need to do is throw a blockchain at this. But it is a definitely an opportunity to try to affect some change and to align interests a little bit better.
0: So then, definitely back to like sort of what Forrest's first question about like democratizing. It sounds like it definitely is an opportunity. Then.
3: There is a wonderful NFT project called Nouns that is totally open source, totally on-chain. A new noun is created and auctioned every day. It, they are fully uh, Creative Commons Zero licensed, like essentially public domain assets. Every piece of it is, is open and freely licensed. And all of the money that they raise from selling them is put into a community-governed treasury and the community all vote together on what to do with the money and they have funded short films using the nouns as characters they have funded different software projects in the in the space they have there's all these creative projects that are blossoming around this new IP that was created and is owned by everyone i mean there's a concentration of wealth for sure there are big nouns holders there is sort of the noun the founding team obviously has a lot of sort of spiritual influence
4: Uh, how much do nouns go for now
3: oh they expensive man we don't talk about that but (laughs) uh, but but part of that (laughs) is because they are this blue chip representation of what is possible with this new paradigm
1: yeah, it's also like uh, for everyone listening who doesn't know much about the NFT space, there are very expensive ones, but there are also, you know, you could buy something for like five bucks just to experience the technology and all that stuff behind it. Like you can even get like NBA top shots for like five bucks. I'll right. sell you one for five bucks too. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I a
4: whole set of top shots for you.
0: So what is next then in the, in the God's space and for you guys?
4: So Jamie's been doing amazing, deep, hard work on... um taking all that data from the gods and making something a little more interactive um tons of crypto programming <laughs> um in solidity uh and we're, we're we're moving towards a way that you can interact with your god and earn a token that hopefully we can use to play a little game with right now there's a, a mini game that you basically can pray to your god there's basically four buttons where you can pray you can cower you can sacrifice to your God and it earns you a, a token that's just for our little universe. We're not, we're not throwing any money behind it. We want it to just be um, something that like feels like um, it can be spent back into this same little ecosystem. The, the way that Jamie's doing it is difficult because we want to make it extremely cheap. Like Forrest said, um, there's lots of NFTs out there that, that are uh, less expensive, but they're less expensive probably because they're on either smaller chains or, or other things than Ethereum, like Tezos, or like you said, NBA Top Shot is, is on something else. Um, so, so the next thing we're doing with gods is ensuring that it's affordable for people to interact with them a lot and keep it all on chain. So all that ownership remains with them.
2: But also, also the, the 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 reason we're like building these features is to build hype and interest in the project, so that we can sell the rest of the remaining unminted gods. Because there there is pressure from the community to be like, it's a weird thing that for your fans to be like, why isn't this sold out yet? And so that creates pressure on us to like, or what are ways we, so we can build interest and get people to buy even more.
1: I always like to ask this question of people who are either incredibly negative about a subject or incredibly positive it appears that you are all fairly uh, crypto optimistic but are there any elements that you look at in the space that give you concern
4: yeah the speculative nature without a lot of care for the people developing the thing um, is is not a, a positive experience for for the most part yeah you know I mean but that occurs in web 2 like you know you get you get VC money or dedicated users but you can't build the product in a way that People want it like they're gonna, you know, hound you about that as well. Um, we've definitely experienced versions of that at VHX and Vimeo, you know. Yeah, sure. But in in crypto world, it's, it's those those timelines and those expectations are, are mega amplified.
3: Yeah, There's just the just the, the compression of the timelines is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. And calling it day trading is too long. It's it's minute trading. You yeah. know, it's yeah. it's really. Uh, there's a very intensive undercurrent of speculative trading culture through almost everything. And I think it's very important that artists or really anyone getting involved knows that. And so there's right. a lot of uh, both just normal sort of financial risk associated with that. But because this is also pretty bleeding edge technology with that introduces a lot of new concepts, there's also a lot of technical risk and... That's part of why there's such high rewards and such like high yields on various like lending and saving protocols and things like that is because people get hacked all the time because it's, sure. it's there's there's all kinds of new surface area for hacks and everything's made out of money. But the
2: speculative community is just like it makes it not fun at all and toxic.
1: Yeah, I think people uh, often misalign their criticisms. They may criticize the technology or the way that it's being used, when really the criticism always boils down to, it's people. People suck.
3: <laughs> yeah. 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 And and I think that there are, it's, um, I think depending on which room at this party people kind of get introduced to crypto through, you have a very different lens of it, because um sort of like these, you know, artist, creator, fun building spaces are, are a lot of fun. And people buy stuff because they like it. And sometimes they sell it to make money for sure. Um, but I've also seen the boiler rooms where it is nonstop price talk. People are literally have no idea what they're buying. They just see tokens on a chart and they buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. And it is
2: straight straight internet gambling. Unfortunately, all, a lot of the bad stuff always bubbles to the top. This, that's what everyone sees, and unfortunately, that's you know that's what everyone knows. Like, right? Like, it, there's a lot of distaste for all of this, and it's because of all the boiler room talk that gets surfaced.
1: I think that's right. I mean, it's like uh, to compare it to the movie that we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, uh, you know, a thousand people went to this carnival and had a great time for ten cents, but they make the movie about the guy who pretends to be a mentalist and gets you know shot in the ear like of course you're going to make the conversation about the really crazy stuff but totally it's not not indicative of what uh the entire population looks like yeah but those people came to watch the geek you know (laughs) they're a little (laughs) strange
4: (laughs) those people came to gawk at at all 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 of it too like like nobody's innocent there
3: (laughs) so uh when they come in if they stay long enough are they given a carny token yeah right (laughs)
4: I bet there is a geek coin.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so many; they all mean different things.
4: I mean, like the the whole movie, like is there's there's a lure, there's like the sauce, the addictive part that they, they're they're taken with the exhilaration, yeah. There's the mm. exhilaration, and then there's the trap at the end of it. And like similarly to like NFTs and crypto, like there's the allure, like oh, I could make a lot of money on this new ten thousand piece project that just came out. I'm going to buy 10. I'm now stuck in this environment, so I've really got to like double down.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. You know,
4: uh, I'm going to buy 20 because it's low right now and I think it's going to go up. It doesn't go up. You're trapped with holding this bag of pictures that you don't enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and now you're a geek.
3: That's <laughs> it reminds me so much of that um, Pixelmon project that was released recently. There was just one of these super hyped NFT projects um they released all this incredible preview art um and people bought into them you know you, so often with these these releases you're buying into them blindly as well like people kind of like you're like you have to sell all of them before you can even see the art for one of them
4: yeah and, it was like a, it, was, it was projected as a 3d pokemon and and like did a great job hyping it up and selling it
3: yeah and sold them for a any fortune artwork hmm. yeah and and then and then the day of the Artwork reveal came and they were just awful.
4: <laughs> in in and, fact, one was so bad that it became a meme in the universe and is actually quite uh, um, expensive now. Because, yeah, like, this, this is the way. The worst this is the way.
3: Them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like it's uh, it's gone full uh, the room, and, yeah. and uh, you're oh like, man, that's classic internet trolling. Classic right. internet. I love it. I do love. Yeah those moments of just
1: total absurdity it's right it's all about faith or, or in in terms potentially useful for comparing to the movie it's all about confidence right it's can you get people to invest confidence in you and sometimes that confidence can be rewarded which is great that's how businesses work and sometimes that confidence is a means to an end or, or means to a, a scam that's how you fall for it oh yeah speaking of we're, we're about to we're, we'll jump into the movie and, and spoil the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but. Uh, before we before we let everybody go who needs to go uh did you guys want to promote anything uh do you have any other projects jamie you could talk about helium if you want or oh boy <laughs> uh, just yeah hit us with with whatever you want people to check out
3: yeah i mean i guess it's, it's the nft episode so we have to show the gods buy a god gods.xyz yeah
4: check us out we're, we're you can you can see what what we make you can play with it you can right click the jpeg and and, and even see it on your your uh, 3d device if you want to more than anything i think people should you know find a way to mess around in in web3 find a way to play with nfts buy some find some cheap ones and, and see what it feels like it's fun to own a couple of things it's fun to support an artist and if you can find an affordable cheap way that makes you feel good and makes someone else feel good then i don't, I don't know that's how i got started i can't recommend um, doing it enough.
3: Oh, and that, that's still not your style, go download Casey's new party game, Wavelength, in your yeah, local right. iOS or Android app store. Uh, the Zero Thank Crypto you, Just
2: Vibes. <laughs> Great party game. You can play with two to hypothetically infinite players in the same room or remote. Uh, wavelength.zone is the website.
0: When did that launch, Casey? That was really recently, right?
2: Yeah, that was like four weeks ago, I believe. Um, it's going, it's going really well so far. Uh, I it's think been I saw well
0: you guys in, I saw you in the app store. Yeah,
2: yeah, we're in that iOS and Android app store got, being got featured, promoted. got promoted. Mm-hmm. We're going to be promoted again, supposedly, in the main today tab, which is like the first thing people see when the, they open it. So, turns out the Apple editorial team seems to like it, which is cool. But
0: can I play as my god? <laughs> oh, yet. that is a,
3: that is, Jesse, now you're cooking with gas. <laughs> now you're cooking with
4: electricity. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Web3 mind right there. Yes, it is.
3: Bridges are being
4: built. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you guys so much again for, for coming on. And um, this was, this was so helpful, I think, for me and then for our listeners as well, who may not be quite as familiar with the NFT space. So um, really appreciate your time today.
1: Yeah. It's always great to talk to you guys. We'll jump into uh, a little bit more spoilery uh, movie discussion uh, after the break. All right. So let's talk uh nightmare alley before we get into it too much. Jesse, I know you wanted to do a, you want to take two minutes uh, on the clock to just go over the plot of the film.
0: Yeah. We're gonna say we're going to say 2 minutes. And I see if, I'll see if I'm going to see if I can do it like even quicker than that.
1: But. let's go. All right. After my editing it'll be real quick.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. So Nightmare Alley can probably best be described as almost two movies put together, right? We start with Stanton. He is walking away from a house that is on fire and it's kind of mysterious and then he approaches this carnival and inside the carnival he Finds a job, and he doesn't really talk for the first little bit, and then he is given a job working with the Carnes, and eventually he starts working with Tony Collette's character. So we have Zena and Pete, and Zena is a tarot reader. Pete is um, a drunk who is also a mentalist, and he is taken under their wing, and he starts to learn from them. Meanwhile, he also falls in love with Molly, who is. Um, part of the carnival as well. And eventually he accidentally gives the wrong alcohol to Pete, who is a drunk, killing Pete. And Bradley Cooper's character Stanton and Molly run away together into the city. Once they're in the city, this is like the second half of the movie, where they are living high on the hog, performing as mentalists. And and then they eventually... Are uh, they meet with Kate Blanchett's character, Dr. Lilith Ritter? And she is a psychologist who is trying to out Bradley Cooper's character as a fraud. And he humiliates her in front of this huge crowd. And the person who uh, Dr. Lilith is working for is um, this, like, sort of this really rich guy. And he, wants to know if Stanton is a fraud or not. And once he is sort of proven that he's not a fraud, even though he is, um, then he starts paying Stanton all sorts of money to do readings for him. Meanwhile, his name gets around to this other really rich bad dude and uh and Stanton gets into all sorts of trouble there. Cool. So it's the the general gist of it.
1: So, uh, and to ruin this for everybody. Yeah. Uh, Bradley Cooper's character gets in trouble with that last rich guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, loses all of his money, which is stolen by Kate Blanchett's character. And, uh, he has to run from the cops because she, uh, convinces them that he's a madman who needs to be imprisoned. So he runs, hops onto a train, skedaddles back to another, uh, carnival, which apparently are just...
0: Was it the same carnival though?
1: Beats me. It was, the world is rife with carnivals. Uh, and he ends up becoming, uh... What is known as the geek, which is uh, basically a guy who's like half man, half animal, eats uh, chickens live and shows pretty disgusting. Right, right. Classic
4: I mean, subhuman stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he a man or a beast?
0: Right, and he's actually not a half animal. He's just um, the like very depraved, like the lowest point of his life, um, and and acting like an animal. But, yeah. but but yeah, that's how they they advertise him to the people coming to the carnival.
1: Cool. Cool. So, uh, we, we may not have made two minutes, but we'll get close. (laughs) No, definitely not.
0: (laughs) Um, well, so a little bit of background then before we get too much into this, the release date was obviously very soon since this is, um, one of our films that are leading up to the Oscars this month. Um, it was released on December 17th, um, 2021. There are so many movies released on or around your birthday for us.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, it's a, it's a prime, uh, day for Academy Award and also for like all the Star Wars movies come out that weekend.
0: Uh, that makes sense. Um, So it was in theaters on December 17th of last year, and then it was released streaming on March 8th. So just a few days ago um, of this year. And then they also released a black and white version on limited screens on January 14th in LA for up to six days. And that was such a success that they released it and expanded it across the country on January
1: twenty eighth, to a one like just over a thousand screens. Interesting. I think I might like this in black and white a little more, but
0: I think that you would, and and the reason is because as I was going through some of the interviews, um, Guillermo del Toro was talking about how he and the DP were purposefully working to make this a black and white film, so that I mean, they really fleshed out all of the mid tones as they were going, and they made sure that all of those colors are represented in color, so that if you were to strip out the color that it would be a, just like a really rich film. Guillermo del Toro also said that he would watch the dailies in black and white as well.
1: Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a very like film noir style. And so it would make sense. You, I'm sure you get a lot of high contrast, very interesting you know, black and white like texture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, and that's exactly right. You know, they wanted to basically make a, a, a noir film. Um, and so the first he said the first half of the film is, is it's almost like two different films. And I'm sure that you guys probably felt that as you were watching it, but the first half was very like sort of Neo film noir. And then the, the second half when he's in the city, was supposed to be a lot more like classically noir in yeah. terms of the way that it looks and feels.
1: Speaking of look and feel, I loved the uh, opening when he's running through. So he's chasing after the the geek um, and he's running in through the carnival and they're mm-hmm. like, um, I forget if it was like a, it wasn't like a haunted house, but it was like a fun a, house. Yeah, fun house. Yeah, that was designed so well. That was really cool looking. It was yeah,
0: incredible. yeah. Actually,
4: one of my favorite shots was the first shot where he got on the train. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. and he fell asleep and woke up. the The transition was like a single shot, but it, they they did such a great job with the lighting and the movement of the camera that it like time passed instantly. And it didn't feel like a guy was pretending to fall asleep and wake up. It, right. It, it was, it was really a nice transition. Yeah. And then like in the window, the, the carnival kind of uh, like lights up as, as if it just like appears there in his mind. It right. Was, it was a nice intro.
0: Yeah. They, they also talked about how they tried to use a lot of like really long shots sort of similar to what you would have seen in, in films of that era as well.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And they do, there's one scene where, um, uh bradley cooper's character is chasing molly uh, played by rooney mara chasing her around a bus station as she's getting ready to head out of town and abandon him Mm -hmm. and that's i think one long tracking shot through that whole thing and they like walk around through the bathrooms and through all the spaces and stuff it was it was super well done
0: yeah oh so funny story about that particular scene so this was a film that was uh shot right right at the beginning of 2020 Um, (laughs) was when they had gotten started. And so they had to actually shut down production for six months at the beginning of the of the pandemic. And so the week before they shut down production, Rooney Mara went up to Guillermo del Toro and told him, like, I'm pregnant. Don't tell anybody. And they were, you know, they shot that they shot that scene that you were just talking about where she's in the bus station. And then they had to shut down everything for six months. And so there's a point where, you know, he's chasing after her and then she goes through a door. And before she goes through the door, she's pregnant. And then after she goes through the door, she's had a baby.
4: (laughs) That's hilarious.
0: Yeah. And so she, and and they filmed like, I guess, all of the city stuff first. And so the carnival was what they shot afterwards. So you actually have her as like a a new mother to a seven-week-old baby um when she filmed all of the stuff at the carnival
1: and also like in like the bikini and on Mm -hmm. the stage and stuff like that yeah
0: she said it was a really just sort of strange experience to to be playing this like ingenue sort of character while she also has her like you know breast filling up with milk every hour and um she's you know she's got her baby and and it's funny to watch the interviews because though people will be like well what do you remember of this time she's like i don't remember anything (laughs) <laughs> i had a seven week old baby it is a blur
4: what a what a creepy thing to play at the very end what the uh
1: oh yeah you know, we turned it off <laughs> <you> did? <laughs> We did we we uh saw it, it just it was like i don't need to see this it oh, just no. it.
4: <laughs> yeah it is uh yeah for for her to have given birth and then play that part is just very wild.
1: Yeah, there's a, a scene or a couple scenes where Willem Dafoe, who runs the carnival, um, and specifically some of the freak trail elements, has uh, is in his office all of these containers yep. full of like fetuses and stuff. And one of which looks like it was sewn together with a big eye in the center of its head and stuff. It's very very gross.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah, my wife didn't want to keep watching it either. Mainly, yep. she didn't like she didn't like um the creepy factor.
0: Yeah, the creepy baby at the end was just... It was too much for me. I was like, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, apparently, that lives in one of GDT's homes uh, because I guess he has several homes, two homes, in fact, that are devoted just to like his items from movies and yeah. just like his toys and stuff. And so uh- he he has kept one of those, or he kept that, uh, that specific prop.
1: Do you have the rundown of like films he's done, uh, in the past? Cause I know he won the Academy Award for Shape of Water, which also was about a freak and a, in a bunch of goo. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I have his big ones. So Mimic was in 97, um, Blade and Mimic was like his big one. He's did a lot of other stuff before that as well. Um, but Mimic was his sort of really big, like American film, um, and he did that with Miramax, and then in two thousand two, uh, he did Blade Two. Two thousand four, he did Hellboy.
1: 2006, he did Blade Two. Did... Yeah. Yeah. The the like vampire killers in that one are, are pretty much aligned with his aesthetic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... yeah. He actually wrote three novels called The Strain that oh, were yeah. like a post uh, like apocalyptic vampire sort of trilogy, and that became a series on FX. He also did Panslav in two thousand six. Um, Hellboy two in two thousand eight, Pacific Rim in twenty thirteen. Oh yeah, yep. He did an episode of The Simpsons. He did Treehouse of a Treehouse of Horror episode, if you can imagine. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And then he did um, Crimson Peak in twenty fifteen, and then The Shape of Water in twenty twenty
1: one. Yeah, and he was for a very long time tied to things like The Hobbit. He's yep. a, a very interesting filmmaker and certainly has a very like unique vision, especially when it comes to like, oh, can we make things that are very creepy? Because <laughs> yes, he can.
0: Right. Yeah, he actually is still, he was, um, wasn't able to do The Hobbit. He had to drop out because I guess MGM was having financial troubles and it was, there were too many delays for his schedule, but um, he's a co-writer on that trilogy. Yeah. He wrote his first book when he was in college, which was a biography of Alfred Hitchcock um, that I think makes sense because as I was watching Nightmare Alley, I was like, this feels, especially for the end, it's like it feels very Alfred Hitchcock.
1: Yeah, the I end, the, like the, the second Hitchcock. half, you're right. Yeah. I mean,
4: very Hitchcock. Like, there's just a shit ton of fore- foreshadowing. Sorry.
1: Should I not swear? No, Swear. swear. Okay. So this movie was ba- was a remake of a 1947 film by the same name, right?
0: That's right. So it was a remake of a 1947 film, but it was actually, so that 47 film was based off of a 1946 book huh. by the same name. And and so when GDT and his team were, were creating this, they actually wanted to make something that was um, not a remake necessarily of the film, but really was a retelling of the book um, instead. And um, the, the writer of the book is also very interesting. He is, his name is William Lindsay Gresham, And he was sort of this guy that was like on a spiritual quest to like learn more. So he was into Buddhism, tarot, psychoanalysis, um, early Dianetics, yoga, physical, like physical culture, just in general. But, um, and this was all the way back in like the 1940s. Um, He fought in for, in the Spanish civil war, which is where he was first introduced to this like idea of the geek.
1: Um, Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. And then his, and his wife left him randomly. His wife left him and married C.S. Lewis. <laughs> 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 um, kind of yeah, no, it's just like completely random. But yeah, the and so he wrote this novel, and then um, I guess Tyrone Power, the actor Tyrone Power, read the novel and was just like um, just obsessed with it and wanted to make it into a film so much. So he, in order to convince 20th Century Fox to do the film, he said like you know. Because they didn't want to do it because it was so dark. Um, he said that he would tack on a few more movies to the end of his contract if they would agree to like make the film in nineteen forty seven. Wow! But they really wanted to sort of GDT really wanted to stay away from the first film and really just reference the the book itself.
1: Interesting i didn't know about the the book film history i went into it pretty blind as did we i actually thought like just watching the trailer it tells you nothing about the plot and i was like okay bradley cooper is a detective who's investigating a murder and i was like that's not at all what happened (laughs) yeah
4: i um i try not to even watch trailers i like to just go in almost any situation unless people are really talking about it and i need to see the trailer but I, I like to go completely blind and just as long as it's not a horror, I'd, I'd uh, like, <laughs> yeah, I'll go in and watch whatever.
0: Yeah. I think that was sort of our, I mean, we watched the trailer beforehand and I, I don't generally prefer it, but what was nice was that we came out of the trailer going, I have no idea what this is about.
1: But uh, yeah. that's good. That's just that's rare. Yeah. yeah. Jesse actually said, she's like, that's the kind of trailer I like. Cause it's not plot at all. It's just vibes. It's yeah. like just cool looking shit. And it's like, oh, if you like the way that this looks, you might like this movie. On on the flip side, watching the film,
4: like after William Dafoe gives a tour of how the geek is created, I'm yeah. like,
1: okay, I know what's gonna happen for the rest of this film now. Absolutely the same. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I felt the same way where it's like, oh, that he would they would not explain this if it weren't gonna be the case that Bradley Cooper ends up being that
0: guy. Okay, <laughs> yeah, you guys have so much more foresight into this than I did. I mean, like toward the end when he came back to the carnival, I was like, Oh, okay, I guess this makes sense. This is what's going to happen. But I uh i i think i just tend to watch movies where i'm just along for the ride uh and it just didn't even occur to me until like the very very end
4: well at the end after he um broke that dude's nose off hmm. and and jumped on the train man the violence in guillermo's oh, no. movies are just just over the top uh-huh. like the the last hit where he killed the old man yeah like it didn't have to sound like that
1: but it did. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's the thing I think that's common with his films where when there is violence it typically is it's late in the film. It's uh extremely rapid in its ascent and it's incredibly vicious. It's like Yeah,
4: it's it's super vicious. But like when when he got on the train to escape everybody and got in that, you know, train hold of chickens.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: You're like, "Okay, now it's going to take 15 20 minutes for him to Evolve into the right. geek. Okay. What's this going to Yeah. I like, actually,
1: I wrote in my notes, I'm like, he's going to eat one of those chickens.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Like, is he going to eat one? Is he going to be like, it'd be great if, like, I feel like he could have ended the movie right there. Mm-hmm. He's like so depraved at that point and could eat the chicken and like be that geek, just and an hint to his future. But instead, like, we flash forward months and and, and it takes a long time to, you know, show him becoming, devolving to the geek. Right. Yeah.
0: What did you guys um, think about that scene? The, that final scene where he...
1: Like uh, the laughter? Uh-huh. Uh, I was like, it's a little much. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I, I feel like I could have skipped that whole part and just like... Yeah, I think that, I, I think if he would have gotten off the train, like maybe he gets on the train, lays down, he wakes up and he's like bearded and, you know, obviously disheveled. And walks out, goes into the office at this, you know, place. And we had the office scene, but it just like cut that laughter a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, That would have been fine. Um, But yeah, it did seem to go on a little while with like the other homeless dudes he was with um, around the campfire and all that kind of stuff. It's like, at that point, we kind of knew where it was going. So it should have just gotten there.
0: I think that they were, I mean, they were really wanting to like build to that final scene. Yeah. And, um, And Cooper and GDT talk about how, I mean, that's like sort of, the pinnacle of the film for them, basically, or just like that's the um where everything is leading. And that um Cooper was so worried about not being able to get that that take.
2: Yeah.
0: Um I I, I appreciate it as I, I think that we were talking about this before, Forrest, where I just I I walked away from the film not having having kind of neutral thoughts. And the more I've learned about it, the more I appreciate it and like the craft and everything that went into it. But um I guess that that trailer um, which is where the final scene is set, um, they built so that it could be mobile, so that they could do the scene and maybe Cooper would get it. And if they he didn't get it, then like pressure is off. They can just take it with them wherever they go and they can try <laughs> again next week. Um, and the scene that, the the take that you see in the film was his first take.
1: Oh, well. Yeah. I have this perspective on Bradley Cooper as an actor where I still think of him from like, wedding crashers and the hangover movies and stuff like that <laughs> and i'm like is he a movie star or is he an actor and i'm not sure mm-hmm. i've come down on that yet like where i think he he sits with me because he's he was good in this for most of the movie in large part because it's like he has to play a guy who's like a little bit more handsome so he gets by on the confidence in his looks and styling mm-hmm. uh, but when he had to like turn it on at the end with the scruffy beard and everything i'm like you still look too handsome to have gone this crazy
0: i had the opposite feel i was watching him and i had the opposite feeling where i was like he's not handsome enough to have all these ladies throwing themselves at him i just don't see it but
1: well in the 1930s you know handsome was a different thing (laughs) sure he's quite tall
0: um i guess but I, I just I don't know. I was like looking, I was like, I don't think he's that I don't think he's handsome enough to have some lady just giving him a hand job in a bathtub in the first five minutes that she met him. But I don't know, I guess uh maybe for the 1940s.
1: Yeah. Did you see the
4: rest of the people around her? That's true. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, and compared to the rest of the Carneys, what a handsome no. fella.
0: That's true. Um
1: What do you think, Chad? What do you think of Bradley Cooper's acting? And did he like pull it off for you or were you like drawn out of it by the fact that he's bradley cooper
4: you know what like i feel like he wasn't time period appropriate yeah uh some something about him that never felt like it matched with like who they were representing
0: but you know who uh, they like originally felt a little
4: was. too fresh
0: mm. originally um, they were going to try and they, uh leonardo dicaprio was set to play the role
4: yeah i i could see that working maybe i don't know for some reason, um, I yeah, I don't know if it's because of the hangover and all those, but like, yeah, I he, I has, don't know. he yeah, took he me has, out of he, the the mood. He
1: has he has like an innate charm to him, which I think is why I say like movie star, right? Like he's got this sort of kinetic energy, this like mm-hmm. um sort of steely-eyed confidence a lot of times. And I, I think that worked in parts of this movie, especially where he was like, you know, the high society mentalist who was doing two shows a day at the Copa, like that vibe matched with that for me, but like the, Oh, I'm just a worker who's sitting under the, you know, the tents at the carnival and I'll go run out in the rain and fold up things. I was like, ah, I don't know, man. I feel like, uh, I wasn't getting enough of the down and out from him.
0: I don't think that he was supposed to be down and out as much at that point though. Um, from the way that they were showing or that they talked about it. I think that, you know, he, he certainly had a past that he was running from um but at least um one of the things that they had him do was um GDT told him that he wanted him to like learn about boxing because that's how a, a a man like of that time like would would learn how to carry themselves especially if they come up from like you know hard times or whatever but um he wanted him to like sort of move in that way and to and to show um like in that in that opening scene where he's in the fun house um almost like a Balletic, like ballet type movement, when he's like taking the guy and throwing him to the ground to, oh, sure. to show that he's like very sure and confident in himself and like um, very um, physically confident in, in his ability to like take people down and, yeah. and his physicality. Um, yeah. As a, he definitely looked
1: like a guy who could beat people up,
0: <laughs> right? And then and to do it like swiftly without any effort or like forethought or afterthought, you know. Yeah. What did you think in terms of like themes of this movie?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the big one that ties in with sort of some of the conversation we had earlier Mm -hmm. is confidence, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it it was the idea that he traded on his ability to convince people that he could do something that he couldn't really do. And in part that was for entertainment and that's great and Mm -hmm. not a, not a huge deal, but in part it was, um, you know, to, to make himself rich at the expense of others, which is where it turned from being you know a mild entertaining pleasure to being a a genuine scam and i think that it was nice to see that um represented in part by david Stratheran's character early on where he's like look you know this book that i use for this mentalist stuff you know these kinds of tricks they're for fun they're to get people you know some sort of enjoyment but we don't do spook shows right we don't tell Mm -hmm. people that we can see they're dead whatever because that is uh it crosses the line it gets dangerous at that point And so he had a code, right? Man's got to have a code. And Mm Theron had that, and we see that Bradley Cooper does not. And that sort of um, cycles back to what we saw at the beginning when he's dragging this dead body into the floorboards of a house and lighting it on fire. It's, you know, he has to figure out a way to make it through the world um, by leveraging really nothing other than the confidence that he can create in his character. So I thought that was a big theme for me.
0: Yeah. And sort of, I think, very much tied to that is... Um, Guillermo del Toro wanted to show that this is um, the flip side of the American dream, which mm. is um, sort of this, the the nightmare is getting these opportunities and not seeing them. Right. And like um, having all of these opportunities and, and sort of letting them slip through your fingers um, as well as, you know, never having enough, which is what Stanton's character ends up with. And and this this for me felt very parallel to this idea of crypto as well, which is that you, you um, he has he, you know, between the first and the second half of the film, it could end there and be its own movie where it's like a happy ending. He has everything. He's got the girl, he's run away, he's got the book. And then he doesn't, you know, you you cut to him and he's on top of the world being this mentalist and he doesn't see it. And it's never enough. And he keeps pushing and pushing and then he ends up with nothing. And it sort of reminded me of when you when you bought that Bitcoin (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, years ago and
1: in 2012 in, or something right
0: and and especially at the very beginning when bitcoin was like such a new thing and you didn't know where it was going to end and so you made so much money just like within a couple of weeks i think and no, you're like three days within three oh within three days
1: yeah i bought one bitcoin at 140 dollars oh, and yeah. on on a thursday and on sunday i sold it for 650 dollars <laughs> and i thought i was the the smartest man in the world yeah. I was like i did it
0: because <laughs> you just don't know you don't know you don't know when enough is enough and or the like when the floor is going to fall out with something that new right and then if yeah. you had kept it now how much would that bitcoin be worth nobody something. knows
1: <laughs> impossible <laughs> to say
0: yeah. yeah um but but like you know there's these people who like just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and then especially with like the newer um i think cryptocurrencies and then they end up sort of with nothing because the floor falls out or whatever just well, like it's not- people
1: you know yeah. people who say well bitcoin's at you know 40 and i know it's going to go to 100 so they put in their life savings at 40 and now it's down to half that or whatever right yeah.
4: well it's like an investment too like emotional i mean one yeah. of the other themes in the movie is psychology right obviously yeah for sure
0: like, right
4: he's doing the the sideshow version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but later, like he, he sees the more sophisticated city version of it mm-hmm. and, and like wants to ape it, but like, it's totally played. Right. Yeah. It's, then- it's funny because it's so, um, Freudian psychology. It's mm-hmm. like, like, you know, the constant reminder of the parents, right? It's very forties psychology, Yeah. Which, which I enjoy. It's funny. Like his transition to being excellent at it is, is like instant. Mm-hmm. you see none of the learning
1: process
0: yeah it doesn't feel earned
4: no well, it's
1: like a, it's like he's a, uh, has a gift for it rather than it being a thing he learns yeah. right
4: but like you see no like you know flick of the switch you know you see no light turn on you just it's it's as if he chanced upon it yeah Oh no, not for, for some reason um the transitions felt abrupt and it felt like more important to tell the story than to like show this character
1: yeah they definitely yada yadded over a little bit of stuff. One of the techniques they used for that was like he would go to sleep and he'd have these dreams of like fire in the house and like his dad's face and all this kind of stuff. And then he'd wake up and that was the that was basically like the training montage where he's like, now he's good at this. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. right. Well, the the film itself, the runtime um on the final version was I think two hours and twenty minutes, but the original cut was like three hours and fifteen yeah. minutes. Oof. And so they cut out. I mean, they cut out a lot. I think he said he cut out like 40 minutes from the first half of the film, and then like another 20 or 30 minutes from the back half of the film. And so I'm sure a lot of that probably was that like development that you're talking about, where you maybe see it a little bit more gradually. But it's like, ugh, how much more gradually uh, can we go than this version he, that we
1: have now? He and David Strathairn mm-hmm. are like running up mountains and like doing magic tricks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, But like, you know, we're talking about psychology and
4: again, liking it back to like NFTs or crypto is, Mm -hmm. is that like, you know, there's the first older couple that like, you know, she kills both of them. Like the, the, the wife of the, of the first convinced spook show couple. Right. Right. They got invested. They got convinced. They doubled down. They got invested. They became certain that the, like what he sold them was the new reality and when when like there was no payoff when there was there's that they they chose to like you know go down with a ship and i feel like they he got super like he himself got super invested with this mentalism he yes. became the god that he was warned not to become right And then he realized how deep he was in it and just decided to go all the way, go full geek, right? So there's this like psychology of like, uh, people always like um, put psychology, like human psychology into investing too. Sure. I I liken NFTs and crypto to investing, obviously for for the direct ties and like there's an emotional investment these guys are doing, Mm -hmm. um, which becomes financially very successful for him. So it's, it's all tied together in, in this movie in, in a way that is, it shows people preying on others, getting them tied into their system and then like getting so deep into it that they have no choice, but to go all in.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think that there's also, for me, I see a lot of this idea of like um he's like a confidence man or like a confidence game um, where, you know, the same could be said with, with a lot of our systems that we make up just in general. So like, you know, crypto or whatever, like we have to like gain people's confidence um, in the system and to like buy into it, like emotionally to believe that it's real for it to actually be a thing. I mean, the same is true for just regular money, right? We don't go off of the gold standard. The same is true for, for a lot of things in our lives where, I mean, time even, right. Is these, these concepts that we make up and they only work because we have a large number of people who are buying into it. Um, in in a very real way
1: yeah i mean think about it this way right like so fiat currency is like the us dollar where it's not pegged to a physical good or whatever and we used to be on the gold standard but even then who knows what the value of gold is right it changes based off its supply and what people pay for it like the value of something is what people are willing to pay full stop and in order for people to pay for something they have to have confidence in it that it has value or worth and that's what exactly what a con man or a con artist plays off of, right? I mean, a businessman, a salesman. It's, it's the same <laughs> right. thing. It's exactly right. And right. so, or
0: diamonds, right? Yeah. Is another example.
1: Yeah, and Chad, you said this before we started recording, but it's like if crypto is like the the at like the carnival at the beginning of the movie, like then the psychiatrist at the end of the movie is like Goldman Sachs or it's like high finance in like Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. It's, they're playing the same game. They're stealing the same money from the same kinds of people, just doing it in sort of a different way. In this, right. in the movies.
4: Yeah. It's a more sophisticated, more like the sales job is easier. Cause it's been like widely accepted by a giant population. Right. The sales job is not important, but the person executing it still has to you know have a lot of confidence
0: Yeah, but Stanton even calls it out, and and this is something that that they talk about too. Stanton calls it out with a line where he says, um, "To he says to um, Lilith, you have your racket just like I have mine." Mm -hmm. And at the time that the novel was written, psychoanalysis had like originated in Europe, and it would and it had come to America, but it was actually seen for a really long time um, as just being this like another piece of hucksterism that didn't have any credence and was like too hokey for like the common sense American way of life. And so it, it, you're right. It came over and it was like starting to gain a lot more sort of prestige, but for a long time it was its own sort of grift as well. Don't wow. talk
1: about your feelings. Let it turn to something else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like, it's more shiny and it's more polished, but it is, it, it is its own thing. And I think especially back then, a lot of medicine and, and psychoanalysis. Um, wasn't necessarily based in science.
1: Um, sure. I did get distracted a little bit in the mm-hmm. uh, scenes with Kate, um, Kate Blanchett because she had the button under her desk that would start the recording of her patient sessions. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are the mechanics that get that thing to work? Because it was a button and then it would open the wall and then out <laughs> from the wall would slide this giant tape recorder. And I'm like, that seems like a lot of work to just organize, to, to, <laughs> to run the wires and the electricity for all that. Like, very interesting. But I did like it as a piece of like, uh design like it's very cool
0: they for the office design what they said was that they wanted it to to sort of be um representative of lilith's character where it is this very beautiful polished room that has all of these hidden dark things
1: within Uh, it
4: i love the the deco it was great
1: yeah yeah really good
4: um i had a hard time believing that bradley cooper's character would not be wary of the recording device.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Like he even commented on it the first time he saw it, like clever racket, right? You know, and then like was so easily manipulated to like instantly talk about killing the, that dude at the carney Yeah. Mm-hmm. From a story perspective, I understand why it works, but it was incredibly hard to believe. I was yeah. like, well, this very savvy
1: cards to his chest dude Right, just, just fell for like that. I don't know. It seemed very hard to believe. I think the way they were trying to play it was that he was very, he had evolved to the point where he thought he was like Superman and he had uh, the world figured out and he was always the smartest one in the room. And so it wasn't that he necessarily was just trusting her, but he just like, wasn't fearful about what she could do to him because he thought he was on top of everything, but he was actually much dumber than he, uh, let on.
0: Yeah. I think that they were trying to say that she was, they were both formidable and, um, they bring out the, the bad side of each other and they like escalate it. I, but I think, you know, I, I think absolutely to Chad's point that for me, I really came away with like, not great feelings I've, i I like a lot of it now the more that I learn but I do think there's this disjointed sort of movement through the film where I don't see all of the connections that are made I don't see all of the motivations
4: yeah um, I, I would say like right off the bat i I came away from the movie being like well I will I will watch that if it was on an airplane again <laughs> but, right but uh like the craft was amazing I loved watching mm-hmm. the shots I'd love to learn more about that the story, and everything felt, I, I wouldn't call it Oscar worthy, you know. Right. right. I I would give it
0: technical awards. <laughs> I think it felt like something from the forties, though, where you maybe they just um, it, a lot of times when I watch older movies, I also have a similar feeling where I'm like, but why did they do that? That doesn't make any sense. Like you're just it, they're going along with the plot for the sake of getting to the final, you
4: know. Right, and, and it's like like a more innocent, less nuanced time. Like mm-hmm. you, you didn't have to have a, a movie, a thriller like keep you on the edge of the seat just but by, by like wondering what was going to happen next.
0: I think that audiences just expect m- more from the way that a plot gets driven, just based off of like other, you know, there's so much that has happened since the 1940s in film and in stories. And, and so when you watch something like that, you know, for me, I, I did I did not, I truly did not understand Lilith's motivation until I, like, went back and listened to a bunch of interviews where it was, like, basically all of it stemmed from, I guess, her being that first initial humiliation. Yeah. Um, And that was all, based from there, that was, like, her entire sort of motivation was to just, like, turn it around and like destroy this man. But like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And and I didn't get that at the time when I was watching it.
1: Yeah. I think they, they do mention it at the end when she like starts to record him for the last time and then ends up shooting him in the ear. She lets on that that was what her motivation was, but Mm -hmm. it happens in a moment of like complete chaos. So it doesn't necessarily register with the audience. They're just like, holy shit, his ear flew off. Right. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, while she's talking, it's not necessarily something that's really like sticking with you. Um, What is this? So I know this is nominated for Best Picture. What other nominations does it have, or if any?
0: Sure. So it actually was nominated for a lot of things, including four Oscars. Okay. Those were for Best Motion Picture, Production Design, Costume Design, and Cinematography. Okay. And it has been nominated for like 97 things so far and won 19 of them.
1: Okay, right on. So, I mean, I think that speaks to what Chad, you were saying is like, uh, maybe best picture is a little bit of a reach, but when you do 10 films a year and you had a bunch of films like being pushed off thanks to COVID, maybe it sneaks in. But right. production design, costume design, and cinematography all seem right on the money. Like yeah. good choices. Oh. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And a lot of the people, I mean, basically everybody that the um GDT has working on this project, it probably is not a surprise at this point, but like they've all worked with him on previous things. So yeah. um, basically, you know, both of the production designers who are up worked with him on Shape of Water. And then the cost, as well as costume, cinematography, like they worked with him on on multiple things as well.
1: Oh, so so cinematographer was still Dan Dan hmm Yep. Okay.
0: Dan Louston. Um, and then costume was Luis Se- Um, And then for um, producers for Best Motion Picture, there's obviously Guillermo del Toro and um, there's J. Miles Dale, but then also third producer is uh, Bradley Cooper.
1: Oh, there you go.
0: Yeah. And they, those two um, have such a a cute relationship where they (laughs) are, I mean, just a lot of mutual respect since Cooper has, you know, obviously he's directed several films now, including um, A Star is Born. And so, you know, I think that they had a very like sort of um, mutual relationship in terms of like director um, and and a lot of like um, mutual respect between the two of them.
1: I'm excited for them to do a, a duet at the Academy Award, like uh, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper did. And that's people right. can wonder <laughs> if they're going to smooch.
0: <laughs> that's right. Um, and then the writers on this are um, Guillermo del Toro, and then this, this, a second writer um, who is his wife.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: So she's a film historian. Her name is Kim Morgan, and they've been married for a few years now. She only has a couple of things on her on her bio in terms of having written before this, but uh, yeah, I guess they wrote this together. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, uh, I, I think we could probably run through and, and just do everybody's opinions on the film. If you want to give it a star rating, you can, if you want to just say yes or no recommend or not um, start with you, Jesse.
0: Sure. Um, like I said, I, I, I would probably watch it again, especially if it's in black and white. I would say it's either a three and a half or a four star. I'm not, I'm, I have like a, a low rating system though. Sure, Um, but I would say, I would I would definitely watch it again. I I appreciate it quite a bit more, but it just it it's it's at at two hours and twenty minutes, it's a lot. (laughs) Um, but but definitely, I recommend it to people who love film.
4: What say you, Chad? Yeah, um, I enjoyed watching it. I don't I don't think I would seek to watch it again. I'd say people should should watch it if if they feel like it. But like, yeah, I I feel like from a story perspective, it uh, left me wishing. You know lots of things and it gave me a general sense of dissatisfaction at the end of it. Um, even though I love the craft of everything, um, I like Guillermo's style, we're on a first name basis,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: and uh, and, and I love like the execution, and clearly, like, tons of talent went into it. There's just so many disconnects that, like, me, I, I personally could not wrap my head around, like Mm -hmm. Bradley Cooper falling for these people that were like 10, 20 years older than him. There's just like so many disconnects that like didn't line up from a storyline that I feel like just it doesn't work in a modern movie, even though it's
1: set in a different time period. Right. Yeah, that's that's sort of where I am. It's like I feel like if you like those film noir, like 1940s films, and you are cool with that sort of plot not being necessarily like fully examined in terms of Mm -hmm. characterization, you don't have to necessarily know why people are doing something, you can just accept that they're going to do it, Mm -hmm. then I think you'll enjoy the film. It's also very dark in terms of it's uh, what it says about humanity and Sort of the the whole carny nature of it, the the tycoons in New York sort of buying these indulgences from this mentalist. Like, it's a very dark film with what it has to say about the the nature of human beings. So prepare for that. I was <laughs> I was not expecting to have like uh, a great moral uplift by the film, but I also wasn't necessarily <laughs> expecting to to see Bradley Cooper turn into a geek. <laughs> and right. uh, I would recommend it if you like the technical stuff. I'd recommend it if you're cool with a movie that's kind of a downer. Um, and I'd also recommend it if you just if you like those old timey style of films. Um, but if you don't like seeing babies in uh, bottles full of <laughs> alcohol, maybe <laughs> check something else out.
0: Yeah, I've watched so Coda. To, to that point about like the how how negative the view is of people. A final note about um, Guillermo del Toro's theme is that you know he he says that all of his movies are basically about monsters and how like the real monsters are men and this was his first what? attempt yeah <laughs> and this was his first attempt at he said like really tackling that head-on where there aren't any metaphoric monsters there's this is really his first film where there's no fantastical aspect it's all like b- based in reality and so like the monsters truly are just men it's, there are no like actual like you know um fantasy style monsters in this movie maybe garo is a terrible monster
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know what I was when I was watching this he seems delightful.
1: Yeah, he seems like a lovely person <laughs> yeah, He yeah, seems
0: like, like one of those people who is just genuinely like kind and sweet and just happens to have a very twisted like you know sense of of style or, or, or art.
1: I think that'll wrap it up for us today. That was a, yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah that was
0: that was great um thank you so much um again chad for joining us this was this was awesome and it's always great to have people joining in for the conversation at the end too
4: yeah for sure i I love a reason to watch a film like a homework reminds me of my (laughs) my
1: art history yeah (laughs) that's why we're doing the podcast is so that we have the excuse to do it ourselves so (laughs) otherwise it's
4: just me with my wife saying "Eh, i don't know
0: (laughs) I joke that Forrest basically like we started this this film so that we could just have homework every single week. Oh, but like in a good way, you in know. In a good way.
4: <laughs> yeah, a projects.
0: Um, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Please take a moment. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you can rate us, you can review us, and then follow us on Twitter. Um, we're on Twitter at The Crosscut or on Instagram at The Crosscut Pod. And uh, tell us what you thought about the movie.
1: Yeah. And next week, we're going to do our last Oscar nominated film before the Oscars hit, uh, mm-hmm. which is going to be Power of the Dog. That's right. Rough, <laughs> rough. That's right. <laughs>